Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Without question, the interview of the day. I will cut to the chase. There's exactly one book to read to catch up with the changes in China. It is the third revolution, and it is by Elizabeth Economy. Of course, she changed our dialogue with China, where the river runs black. Uh, that was just a few years ago. Liz Economy with the Council on Foreign Relations. Professor Economy, good morning. Wonderful to have you with us. What is the third revolution right now for President Xi? He's got some challenges. How's that third revolution going? <laughs> So, you know, the third revolution for Xi Jinping was really upending uh, the period of reform and opening up uh, that Deng Xiaoping had ushered in some 30 years earlier and creating a China that was far more repressive and authoritarian at home, but more ambitious and expansive abroad, right? It was his uh, great rejuvenation of the Chinese nation. I think what we're seeing today uh, is that, you know, over the past six years, this model uh, has produced uh, its own set of fairly profound challenges for Xi Jinping. Uh, you know, there's a great sense of political malaise in the country because of his grab for power. Uh, you know, his you know, elimination of the two-term limit on the presidency, uh, you know, 150 Xi Jinping, you know, institutes, institutes for Xi Jinping thought. People feel as though there's been, uh, to some extent, a return uh, to that Maoist uh, era cult of personality. And they don't want to go back to that, right? Constraints yeah. on the Internet, the intrusion of the Communist Party, you know, into private enterprises and in, in more deeply into people's lives. Uh, so I think he's, he's created his own set of problems uh, through this. Uh, third revolution. Within his third revolution, there has to be a communist party on one page. As he goes to this People's Congress, is his 400 or whatever the body count is, Politburo leaders, are they all on the same page or is there a huge dissent? So this is the the Communist Party meeting, the, the Party Congress happens in the fall. This is the National People's Congress, so there are right. actually 3,000 people yeah, meeting in yeah, Beijing right yeah. now for two weeks. Um, and I think there, there are many dissenting views, uh, you know, and I think part of it has to do with the failure to move forward on structural economic reform. So there's a lot of uh, discontent uh, over, again, Xi Jinping's tightening up and his preferencing of state-owned enterprises over private enterprise. So a lot of dissent around that. There's concern around Xi Jinping's anti-corruption campaign, right, the lack of transparency in that and, uh, you know, lack of rule of law. They had six, over 600,000 officials were uh, punished last year for corruption. That's 100,000 more than uh, the year before. Uh, I, there are many areas of, of unhappiness. But uh, does, he go into this three, does he go into this 3,000-member Congress where everybody claps at the same time? I know you monitor the clapping uh, uh, volume, but, but beneath that is 400, then 200, then six members of the Politburo and all the other subsets that there are. Are they in support of their president? I think we've we've seen, you know, over the, the last summer, um, there was a lot of discussion uh, about a dissent within the standing committee of the Politburo, right? As you said, the sort of the top, very top, uh, you know, seven-person group um, that, that Xi Jinping was being sort of accused of overreach, 
yeah. right, that he had created all these problems with the United States, you know, facing this trade war, uh, that there were problems, you know, through the Belt and Road Project. A lot of countries now are, you know, uh, staying or even canceling projects, these big infrastructure projects that they had agreed to with China. Um, obviously, the Chinese economy was slowing, and they didn't seem to have uh, a game plan. Uh, he wasn't listening to the reform economists, uh, and, you know, he kept wanting to double down on state control. So uh, I think all throughout the system, uh, there is okay. dissent and discontent. So, so, so what is the experience you've seen in their history of what's next? What's the process forward for a totalitarian regime given this dissent? So I think um, if the economy continues to slow, right now what we're seeing is, you know, some small movements toward uh, economic reform. I think uh, Xi Jinping was kind of pushed into a corner uh, and forced to make a statement a few months back about the need to enhance the role of the market, which is not his inclination. Um, so we have to see whether or not they're actually some of these reform initiatives move forward. If they do, if the economy begins to, to kick back uh, in, then I think economic growth kicks back in, and I think Xi Jinping right. is okay. If it doesn't, um, I, I don't expect that they would remove Xi Jinping, but I think you could see what happened to Mao Zedong after the Great Leap Forward in the early 1960s, which is he was moved to the second line, right? Because, and, and basically what that says is he's no, Xi Jinping well, is no longer first. Have you, have you, uh, Dr. Economy, have you identified the next Cho and Lei? I mean, it's great to talk about Mao and, and Xi, but who comes in to save the day? Well, unfortunately, <laughs> the, the sort of the, the three, I think, uh, within the standing committee um, are not particularly strong. There's yeah. Li Keqiang and Wang Yang and uh, Han Zheng. They're sort of the three that, you know, could potentially. Uh, do something, but this would be more of a consensus decision that we're going back to the youngest model of collective and consensus-based decision-making. It's not necessarily that one leader moves in to replace Xi in the way that Xi has grabbed onto power, yeah. but that, that they go back to the sense that no one right. person stands above the rest. If you're just joining us, CV Star Fellow, the Council on Foreign Relations, Elizabeth Economy, I can't say enough about her effort, the third revolution. I read it cover to cover. You should, too. One of the great theories that we saw from the River Runs Black and onward, uh, uh, Liz Economy, is the power of the cities. What is the relationship of President Xi and Beijing to the people that actually run Shanghai, run Hong Kong, run Chengdu and the others? So one of the really interesting things that's happened over the past year, year and a half, is that we've seen repeated calls uh, by Xi Jinping, by Li Keqiang, for local officials to implement Beijing's policies. Uh, there seems to be an incredible reluctance <laughs> on the part of local officials to do what Beijing says. I think it, in part it's because the, the mandates come down. There are so many different mandates, and sometimes they conflict, right? So first you have a mandate you know, to stop lending, right? Then you have a mandate, no, actually start lending again. You have a mandate to protect uh, the environment. Now, just in the past two months, they've said, actually, our targets are too ambitious. We're going to take a step back yeah. in protecting the environment. And of course, the anti-corruption campaign, which has caused many local officials really not to want to take risks. They don't want to be noticed by Beijing uh, and, and then somehow, you know, draw attention to themselves right. and perhaps come under some kind of a corruption claim. So I think uh, right now the situation for Beijing is very dire. Well, 
uh, they have a lot of resistance at the local level. To vamp off the not-so-new normal, Chapter 4 of the Third Revolution, right now, what's the not-so-new normal for President Trump? What's the to-do list for America as they address these uncertainties in China? I think this administration um, is leaving no stone unturned. It's pretty extraordinary, I have to say. It's across the full range of issues, whether we're talking the security front or the trade front uh, or even the political front, right? Chinese influence operations, what's going on in Xinjiang in terms of the repression of the you know, Uyghur Muslim uh, population there. The administration is, is firing like, on all pistons. Um, we have to see what the, the end result is, um, but I would say that they really are trying to hold uh, the Chinese uh, feet to the yeah. fire, so to speak, um, and, and get some movement in, in a way that yeah. uh, I think reflects American interests um, you know, more directly. It was my book of the summer last year, The Third Revolution, Elizabeth Economy. My book of the summer this year is Raga Rajan's new The Third Pillar, which I know Liz will read cover to cover, as I will too. But do yourself a favor, redo The Third Revolution one year on. It is still an exceptionally prescient uh, dissertation on uh, the new China. And of course, with these new announcements, you heard there the urgency from Dr. Economy. Liz Economy, thank you so much with the Council on Foreign Relations. We begin then with our top story, China lowering its goal for economic growth and announcing a major tax cut as policymakers seek to pull off a gradual deceleration with a grappling of a trade story and a debt legacy as well. I want to bring in Bloomberg's David Inglis for more. He joins us live from Beijing. So, David, they replaced the target with a growth range. Walk me through it. Right. Six to six and a half percent. The growth last year overall was 6.6 percent. So the first top line is there is an acknowledgement among the top leadership that growth will slow this year. Investors who are fearing that growth might slip below six percent, this obviously adds a little bit, maybe a floor uh, to growth. More importantly, though, it's the type of growth that they want to pursue. When you look at the tax cuts that they mentioned, 300 billion U.S. dollars its worth of uh, tax cuts and social security fees. And essentially what they're doing is uh, there's, there's been some challenges really in terms of lending money to the private sector. So in a lot of ways, what they're doing is they're leaving more money on the table in the pockets of the private sector and people and hopefully turn around the consumption story that was quite horrible last year. David, does the range also just tell you how uncertain things are for the future of the Chinese economy? It certainly does. I think when you try and quantify what six to six and a half percent is and the difference there, it's a thirteen trillion dollar economy. So that's anywhere from a rough estimate that's about ninety billion to maybe three hundred billion dollars worth of output that may or may not be there. So essentially what they're trying to do and really when it comes to the party, I had a look at the report, forty pages font size twelve. It's a work report. It's the first time they mention explicitly that everything they're throwing at the growth problem right now is really meant to protect jobs and employment. Yeah. And when it comes to the party, it's really all about social stability. Well, there is the Communist Party, and then there's the National People's Congress. By my count, it's 2,900 warm bodies in the room clapping on cue. Great. What percentage of those people support President Xi? That's the big question. Uh, in fact, a lot of the things that we heard today from the work report and a lot of the things that essentially you'll hear the next 10 days or so, uh, 
tomorrow, Wednesday, Asian time, you'll have the economic planner coming up with their own press conference. You have the Commerce Ministry the day after that, the PBOC, what has all these ministries. A lot of the things that you'll hear were decided back in October during the plenum. It is the Communist Party, of course, and what they say essentially is likely what will what, what, what will likely happen. The other piece really to that story as well is really them moving the economy from one that is centrally planned, state-owned, into one, of course, where you have more private enterprise. And the tricky part, and the reason I bring that up, is when they talk about, oh, we need to get capital through the, uh, to the private enterprises. Well, guess what? A lot of the people that we talk to say, if you look at the structure of the Chinese banking system, it's not really designed yet to service the private sector. So really that's one area to watch in how they actually manage to, 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 to gradually yeah. moderate the economy to where they want it to be. Hey, David, great to catch up with you. Bloomberg's David Inglis joining us live from Beijing as we get a new growth range from the Chinese government. Let's talk to someone from Britain who only thinks in centigrade. Actually, she went to the University of Maine, where uh, it's colder than cold a, a good part of the year. Good morning up in Orono. Uh, listening, Marianne Schneider-Petzinger uh, joins us right now, and this is to get briefed on China. Liz Economy to join us uh, later on. Marianne, what, what struck me about the Chinese announcement was the all-in sense of it. Is it a point of crisis for the leadership of the Communist Party, or is this an evolutionary path that they're on to some new policy? I think we're certainly seeing an evolutionary phase where a lot will, will still happen, and certainly also with implications for what it means for the U.S. economy. Um, also, you know, on the U.S.-China front, there are sources that say we're close to a potential trade deal, that we're in the final stages, but um, again, you know, even if we're at the finishing line, are yeah. we at the finishing line of a 100-meter hurdle race, or is this really much well, more about a marathon? And I think it's about those long-term issues. You absolutely nailed the immediacy of the trade deal. Was this document written for the trade deal discussion, or do they look at does China, does Beijing look at the trade deal separate from the seven, eight, nine menu items they came out with for the National People's Congress? Well, I think, um, you know, the discussions there are much, much longer than just having this as part of the, the trade discussions with Trump. But again, because this is also about much more long-term strategic decisions, it will feature in that as well. Again, this trade dispute and the trade war that we're seeing right now is really not so much about trade. It is about much larger structural issues and um, perhaps a um, yeah. global, you know, big power rivalry. What does the VAT tax dynamic mean? They're going to reduce the VAT tax for manufacturing in China? Well, I think, you know, it's certainly meant to um, improve economic prospects as China is entering this period of of showing signs of weakness. Um, And, you know, the Trump administration is very well aware of that and and things are part of um, them being in a much stronger negotiating position. John, this is really important because, you know, you know, at Heathrow, they've got the line there for the VAT tax checkout. For Americans, the whole <laughs> VAT tax thing is like wicked foreign. Yeah. In our collective memory is in Canada, they tried to do a VAT tax and it literally 
brought down the government at one point. Well, very destructive. You know, VAT taxes are very destructive for the poorest in society, yeah. typically. And I mean, that's what typically. really struck me in the Chinese announcement. Yeah, but it's for manufacturing. It's for yeah, a specific I agree. sector. It's, it's for a specific sector. Marianne, just in terms of what is happening in China, how much of it is engineered by the Chinese, the domestic slowdown, and how much of it is engineered by the U.S. administration? Well, I think so far it is mostly about the domestic issues in, in China primarily because the, the tariffs and the retaliatory tariffs, they are significant, but really overall in the theme of things, it, it's minor. Um, and so even though obviously for the prospects of economic growth, this delay of um, tariffs and um, you know, also no longer talking about additional tariffs of $267 um, billion, that is certainly positive, but um, I wouldn't overestimate the, the impact that it's had. Marianne, it's been really interesting over the last couple of weeks, this narrative that has built up, fueled by events in the Oval Office, that there seems to be a spread between the deal the President of the United States wants and the deal that some of his China hawks would ultimately like. Is that just a narrative? Is that just a false perception of what is happening? Or do you think there's something to that? Well, I think there's something to this because there's various um, priorities that the Trump administration has raised when it comes to trade with China. For the President, it seems to be mostly about forcing China to reduce the bilateral trade surplus with the United States. And here it's important to keep in mind that China accounts for about 60% of the U.S.'s global trade deficit. But um, various concerns about, you know, this, this focus on the bilateral trade deficit that is, is really misguided. Um, whereas others in the administration, in particular Robert Lighthizer, the United States Trade Representative, um, his concern is much more about the structural issues, so tackling unfair trade practices when it comes to forced technology transfer, IP theft. And I think on that point, um, the Trump administration has much, much more legitimate concerns, but the methods to address those are wrong. So tariffs aren't really going to do much about it. Much um, more importantly would be to build a global alliance so for the United States to work together with the EU and Japan to um, jointly force China to change their practices. And to some extent, we're seeing that um, the US, the EU and Japan have had trilateral talks and have issued a number of statements over the last year. So there is potential opportunity for collaboration. Marianne, I often hear this, that tariffs aren't the right way forward. But what's interesting to me is that the status quo, what we had before, the traditional approach of getting the Chinese to do what everyone thought the Chinese should do, wasn't working either. What is pretty interesting is the Chinese are actually at the table now. So quite clearly tariffs to some degree are working, Marianne. It's got the Chinese to come to the table and consider doing things that they have talked about doing but haven't done for a long time. Again, it's a negotiating tactic, and yes, you're absolutely right that that has worked in terms of bringing the Chinese to the table. Now, the key question is, what will come after this? Are we just going to see a quick deal that leaves many of those issues that are structural, um, you know, just in limbo and kind of add to this lingering uncertainty? And the other question is also, will it be tough enough to actually have um, an enforcement mechanism? Will that have peace? And and that, I think, um, is not yet quite clear. Uh, Marion, thank you so much. Marion Schneider Petzinger uh, uh, with uh, Chatham House this morning. We greatly appreciate her uh, attendance.
Daniel Katsev with us uh, with BNP Paribas. This is an important conversation on foreign exchange. Daniel, with all the news on China, give us an update on renminbi dynamics. What do we need to know about the president all upset about Chinese manipulation? Give us a BNP Paribas brief on that with BNP Paribas' legacy in China. Well, I think, you know, from the U.S. perspective, uh, there's been a longstanding uh, press to get uh, dollar China moving in a more market-driven way. Uh, lately, though, the message that we're getting from press reports, at least, is that uh, there may be some room for uh, an agreement with, with China to kind of uh, allow the currency to be uh, stable around the current range as part of the, the trade talks that are happening. So it's, a, man- it's a managed that. currency. It's still a man- It's not a floating currency. I mean, it's increasingly more market determined for sure, um, and it you know moves uh, much more than it did uh, right. you know, ten years ago or so. But it has still aspects of a managed currency. Okay, Daniel, with your great experience, I want to get the dollar ambiguity uh, right now. What is a BNP Paribas call on the U.S. dollar? Structurally weaker over the next year or two. Uh, we think as the Fed you know continues to be on hold and the markets start to prepare for Fed easing at some point, uh, the dollar is going to be very vulnerable. For now, though, uh, we're in a very uh, pro-carry environment across markets. Volatility has fallen across markets. Investors are looking for carry-type strategies. And right. within the G10, the dollar benefits as a higher-yielding currency. That's called doing a Kansas jargon alert. Carry on, my wayward son. What is carry? Mm-hmm. What is carry? Well, it's simply the uh, strategies that look for a higher yielding um, asset at a time when market volatility is low. When volatility is low, uh, it's a good strategy to look for, for yield, and, and investors like those types of strategies. Uh, the danger is that at some point, uh, volatility picks up very quickly, and you see a rush to uh, exit from positions like that. Any reason so we think, for vol to yeah, pick up anytime soon, Dan? Well, you know, we can think of any number of things that could be disturbing for uh, markets. Uh, and it seems, you know, sometimes strange that uh, volatilities are so low given all the uncertainties uh, we see in trade policy, geopolitics, uh, the economic outlook, et cetera. So it wouldn't be hard to make a list of things that could uh, jar the market out of their current uh, level of low volatility. Fascinating to see cross-asset vol drive lower, Tom, in the way it has done Yeah, uh, ever the since the Federal Reserve's yeah. retreat, not just in foreign exchange, but in treasuries as well. And it leads me to an important question that a lot of people I know are asking, Dan. We've actually been very range-bound in the FX market, in the treasury market as well. Do you think we stay in that range, Dan, or are you thinking about other things? Walk me through your thinking right now. So for now, all the G10 central banks have signaled uh, patience and, and, and a desire to be on hold, and that's brought volatility down across these asset markets, and it's very hard to see um, uh, those ranges in, in G10 FX breaking. Over the more uh, medium term, maybe beyond a month or two, uh, we think the dollar is at very elevated levels, so there is scope for a big move lower, uh, which would mean these ranges break on the dollar uh, weak side. And we think that'll happen probably in the second half of the year. And market, but it could happen very quickly. When it, once it starts, it could happen very quickly. Could President Draghi stand in the way of that? Um, you know, there's not a lot of ammunition on the ECB side. They've already effectively gone on hold and they're signaling they could reinforce that a bit. Uh, but you know, the ECB is in a situation where policy never really normalized, so it's very accommodative. It's hard to signal uh, additional easing at this point, and they don't have the ability to say, oh, you know, um, we're, we're, we're going to tighten less because market's already pricing very little tightening. So he doesn't have a lot of ammunition. Daniel, what is your optimal play right now? There's a jumble, and I was really taken by the set of Chinese announcements announcements today. But but do you recalibrate here or do you have a trade that you've got a real belief in? 
Well, I think we have to respect uh, the uh, push for carry that we're seeing across markets, and so we want to uh, participate in that uh, dynamic, but we want to do it in a way that we're not taking big valuation risk because there's a kind of this uh, this uh, contradiction between wanting to be long the dollar because it's a high yielder and being scared that the dollar is going to fall back to more longer-term uh, equilibrium. We think dollar-Swiss is one pair where there is carry and where you don't have the valuation risk that you have in other dollar pairs. So we think being exposed to dollar-Swiss upside makes sense in the current environment of the, that we're going to see over the next uh, quarter. Dan, all of these trades that you're describing make me believe that what you see is an economy that reaccelerates in the months to come. Is that your base case, Dan, and why? Well, it's not really. I don't think reacceleration is is what we're looking for. It's more uh, stabilization at below trend uh, rate of growth in the U.S. So it's uh, not um, uh, fast enough for the Fed to resume hikes. Uh, at the same time, it's uh, not slow enough to you know get the markets really concerned about uh, crash risk and and, and pricing uh, policy easing, et cetera, right. in the in, in the in the G10. What is the bet now on dollar? You've got some great charts showing belief in long dollar short dollar or dollar stronger i should say dollar weaker what what what's the belief of the street right now I think if you look across the consensus of most forecasters, it's that the dollar will be weaker over time. Uh, and that's, I think, a reflection of the relatively high valuation that we have on most of the dollar pairs. And we, we think that makes sense. I just think for now, uh, don't be surprised if the dollar continues to hold stable and does better uh, than the forwards would imply. In other words, you can, you can um, make money being long USD because yeah. of the yield differential. This but as I mentioned, dollar Swiss is a safer way to do that than euro dollar, for example. Great. Dan Ketzer, thank Smart you so stuff, much. Smart stuff, Dan. BMP Paribas. Just a thank nice, you. nice update there. It is good to check in with Stephen Whiting of City Private Bank uh, with a real tour of duty in economics and in a strategy, their chief investment strategist. What is the new Stephen Whiting strategy, Steve? Well, it's to uh prepare for a U.S. outlook where the Federal Reserve switches from trying to restrain the strength of the expansion to protect the expansion we're in. Uh, and right now, particularly in Asia, what's relevant is China is moving fairly strongly, regardless of how these trade negotiations work out, but fairly strongly to reinvigorate its economy. It stopped tightening policy about a year ago uh, and has been at a while reinvigorating the strength of the expansion right now. So that combination um, of lower policy rates in the United States, or at least planned where, where they would be, and China's yeah. stimulus really changes a lot of asset movements potentially around the world over the coming year. Buried in your, we were just talking about this with John Tucker, who, uh, what, what, are you in like the 87% marginal bracket? Is it, is it 87%? <laughs> Whatever's John? the worst, that's, that's where It's like Rockefellerian or something yeah, like yeah. that. You've got, Steve Whiting, an important phrase in your Citibank report, the absence of tax cuts. Right. Did we have tax cuts? <laughs> Well, uh, we did last year, and it depends on you know how you feel about them in this tax filing season, because you know we have a, a little bit of uncertainty as to how large the effective tax cut was uh, for different people, especially folks in 
uh, states that have uh, high personal income tax rates and property tax yeah, rates. That have a dog named that. Biscuit? Yeah, but you just take a look. You know, we put a figure in there. You know, you, you're really great with, with charts, Tom. But yeah. if you looked at sort of overall personal income last yeah. year, you know, we were continued at a decent clip. Uh, but the personal tax liability overall uh, grew very, very little. And they usually move together. And that, again, is the tax cut. And we know that the corporate tax cut, for example, uh, was pretty powerful. And I do believe that there are some lasting benefits of the corporate tax cut. But the immediate boost to income that that had is just simply not repeated this year. So you've got to look back at the U.S. economy's performance with about a 3% growth rate last year and say probably the, the single largest spur right. to that growth rate was tax which, cuts, and we don't have another one. And did you hear that, John? We don't have another one, which means you're you're up nine percent next year. <laughs> so, Stephen, you know, you mentioned uh, China, and boy, they've been uh, pretty aggressive with the fiscal stimulus of late. Is it any sense of whether it's working or it will work? What are your thoughts there? It's it's all new. That sort of you know financial implications looking forward. Those things we can measure a few things. For example, in January, we had the largest increase uh, in CNY loans in the history of China. This uh, VAT tax that they just announced, uh, near $300 billion uh, U.S. dollar equivalent, that is all perspective. Uh, there are some things that are still going to slow uh, in China's economy. Export growth, for example, uh, we, we was pulled forward by the threat of tariffs. So the, the desire to order from China ahead of paying tariffs uh, was very strong, and it boosted trade activity in 2018, and there's still some slowing there. But things that did slow internally in China uh, are sometimes even more important. And credit restraint uh, was very severe in 2017 into early 2018. And so things that underperformed were very domestic, like infrastructure spending in the early part of 2018. And that is gradually going to be coming back now. So, Stephen, it's interesting. Uh, Tom and I just earlier today were just talking about the dollar and the strength of the dollar. And we're having a very hard time coming up with a, a bear case for the dollar, or at least even a less bullish case for the dollar. What, what is your view on the dollar right here? Well, look, we thought this year would be a little bit like last year in terms of it being relatively range bound. But the history here is that between 2011 and early 2017, we had the third largest U.S. dollar bull market on record. The dollar is up at a fairly high level. Uh, we have had nine rate hikes out of the United States, and the rest of the world, anyone who hiked didn't really want to. And we're at the point now where the Federal Reserve had some real warnings about activity last year. We saw housing activity, construction and sales fall for a year. Now, not a lot, yeah. not a level sort of that says it's impossible for us to come back from this. Uh, but remember, we also had a tax cut, and we saw banks tightening lending standards in the fourth quarter. So it's all sorts of signs that yeah. we couldn't stay on the same tightening uh, trajectory in the United States. And so when it turns, uh, there's a very good chance here that we peak out of the dollar. Now, one little complication is, you know, dollar euro, or are we talking dollar China? And that's yeah. a very, very different story. Steve Whiting, thank you so much for the update. With City Private Bank as well. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. 
Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.